37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to episode 236 of Pixelated Paranormal. And once again, we have the whole band back together. With me, as always, is Preston. What's up, all you cool ghosts and goblins, you crocodunes and crocodingas? We're on a mission from God tonight. <laughs> and Steve is back with us again. I'll just do a simple hi. <laughs> that works. I don't even think we've ever actually talked about a crocodile, but you know. Yeah, we did. Yeah, when we uh, talked about the crocodingo, uh, there there was a uh-huh. crocodile in there. But you just said crocodile. No. Well, Daddy's been outside in the shop working, and I've had a few too many to drink. <laughs> That's good because you are crocodile, crocodile. That's all right. You're reading predominantly. Most of the episodes, so God speak. Dingo, you speak my lingo. (laughs) Well, let's not hesitate and waste any more time while Preston's firing on all cylinders. Let's jump into the news. Now, I think we've now mentioned spiders on two episodes in the last three or four, but a couple episodes ago we talked about the Joro spider, that was invading the U.S. on the eastern seaboard all the way from East China. And if you don't remember, these are like giant three-inch palm-sized spiders that look a lot like the orb weaver, with a big gold-yellow body and black and blue and yellow striped legs. Hell no. They were said to be coming from Asia into the U.S. via shipping... um, whoopsie-daisies, and any whoozle, they were said to be invading the eastern seaboard, and people were terrified, and everybody thought that basically arachnophobia was about to start over in Georgia. Well, as it turns out, we don't have to be quite so scared anymore, because Joro spiders are found to now be harmless to humans, and maybe even do some good to local ecosystems. People should try to live with them. And just get along. These giant palm-sized Joro spiders, which have largely been confined to warmer southeastern Asia and warmer states as well, will soon be expected to colonize in regions with colder climates. Joro spiders can grow to be up to three inches long, including a large bulbous body. That's what she said. Bright yellow stripes. (laughs) Right. It gets its name again from an interesting creature that we're going to have to do a little research on and talk about called the Jorogumo a Japanese folklore creature that turns itself from a giant spider into a beautiful woman to prey on unsuspecting men. Mm. Because, let's face it, we will try to put our dick in anything. Ouch. Calm down, Charlie Sheen. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Despite their startling appearance and their namesake, they're actually said to be harmless to humans because, even though they have a very strong venom, their teeth are so small, I should say their fangs are so small, they can't actually bite humans or animals to inject the poison. And they're said to prey on smaller insects and also be potentially a great food supply for bigger predators, especially bird species. So, all in all, we shouldn't be too terrified of these giant hand-sized spiders. I think uh, originally when I uh, covered this story like six episodes ago, 
It wasn't so much that uh, they were going to fuck our population, but uh, like in Georgia, where they were just going rampant, um, they were eating like the local yeah. equals ecosystem of spiders. So like whatever the local spider was in the area, oh. they're like nom 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 and just uh-huh. like killing them off. Damn. Yeah, that looks like some Australian well, shit. They're kind of wiping out. They're <laughs> kind of wiping out the old American spider, and uh, I think that was the issue that the article had. Like, watch out, they're everywhere. Well, and the fact that you know they're giant spiders, and everybody hates spiders for the most part. But it's not really spiders that we should be afraid of, folks. Keep your eyes out for camels. Recently, a camel attack left two men dead outside of a Memphis, Tennessee petting zoo last month on March 10th. Past inspection reports suggest the petting zoo called Shirley Farms, located in Obion County, had too little water to support the camels they had for the petting zoo and really shoddy barriers keeping the public separate from the camels, thus allowing a camel to escape attacking two people. Deputies arrived on the scene to find two unconscious victims on the ground at Shirley Farms and a camel still on the loose. The Obion County Sheriff's Office, Lake County Sheriff's Office, Wrigley Police Department, Tennessee Highway Patrol, and the Lake County Rescue Squad were all on the scene in an attempt to render aid and move victims to a safe place. Hmm. As for why the escaped camel was so aggressive, that is left unknown. However, in general, it's said that camels show little aggression towards humans except for males during mating season. But any whoozle, this camel left two men dead due to the attacks. So everybody, forget about spiders. Keep your eyes out for camels. I'm going to call bullshit on that because uh, if you ever watched the original Conan, like, dude, that camel in that movie that spit on Conan was a fucking dick. Okay. (laughs) That's that's where you get your facts from in movies. I'll push my fist into your stomach and break your goddamn spine! (laughs) All right, well, that's a perfect segue, Steve. Our last story before we get into the main crux of the episode. Breaking spines. has to do with a man. Arnold Schwarzenegger? No, but another man who is no stranger to extreme violence. Stallone? Mike Tyson Tyson recently found out that he cannot sell ear-shaped cannabis gummies in Colorado. (laughs) State laws prohibit (laughs) marijuana ed... Jesus. State laws prohibit marijuana edibles from being shaped like humans, Mm -hmm. animals, fruit, or other items that may attract children. So chew on this. Mike Tyson is unable to sell a new line of cannabis gummies in the state of Colorado that are shaped like human ears. Damn, that's a good, that's a good, uh, (laughs) exactly. The former boxing champ's new edibles are shaped like ears with one bite taken out, a reference to that one time in 1997 when he bit the ear of Evander Holyfield. Tyson's cannabis company, Tyson 2.0, cannot sell the ear-shaped edibles in Colorado because of state laws prohibiting edibles to attract children. Tyson 2.0 still plans to sell the edibles, but will modify the shape from a bitten ear to the letter T before their debut later this year. Apparently, Tyson's been in the pot industry since 2016. Oh, he's big in it. Wow, and reportedly he earns about $600,000 per month. (laughs) 
It's crazy. Jesus, we're in the wrong game, boys. Uh-huh. Yeah, he uh, <laughs> he had like a whole in his podcast. That's what he'd do. He'd just get stoned with people. He'd have on there. He'd have he'd have so many guests. He had like a ranch, like a whole retreat uh-huh. and shit, where he would uh, you could go to Mike Tyson's ranch and it was part of his canvas business. And then while you're there, you could uh, like you know get different packages basically. And one of them was like spar, not spar, but train mm-hmm. with Mike Tyson. You know. Th- hit a bag with him or something you know shit like that it, it sold a lot oh wow he's pretty interesting when you listen to him on podcasts he's funny so he's basically like a low-key joe rogan just getting <laughs> pretty much yeah crazy. yeah <laughs> <laughs> but mike tyson dude it's it's impressive i don't give a shit about sports boxing any of the mm-hmm. like but it's really impressive to hear that dude talk like he's um like uh, Asperger's or some shit with the knowledge of boxing. You can tell him any fight from any year and he'll tell you the stats. Oh, wow. Really? The knockout time, the win time, what round. It's nuts, dude. It's He's a walking encyclopedia for that shit because he's just, that's who Mike Tyson is, man. He, if he's going to do something, he goes and does it. He does it to the best. Like, he's ferocious. Yeah. They need to make a documentary on him like they did that Michael Jordan one. That'd be fresh. They've done several uh, documentaries about him. One of them was recently about his love for pigeons and his pigeons. What? Yeah, you didn't know that? No. Yeah, he's huge into raising pigeons. It was just part of like a therapy for him. Kind of like cool. the extreme opposite of, you know, boxing and all that aggression and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah he awesome. loves pigeons. You should check out the uh, Charlie Sheen roast on the Comedy Central because uh, Mike Tyson was a roaster on there. and They, they made a joke about how... Uh, this is, you know, when he was up there, that that was the most that uh, Mike Tyson ever got shit on, except for before the show when he was changing the uh, pigeon coop because he loves pigeons so much <laughs> and they shit everywhere. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, on this episode, as promised previously, we're going to start a one, two, maybe three part series of paranormal stories that come from the battlefield. So, you know, World War II, the Revolutionary War, Vietnam, stuff like that. And, of course, we have already talked about a lot of stuff in Vietnam, i.e. the story from Big John mm-hmm. Wiener, the man who killed, the man who blew up Bigfoot. But, Steve, we know you're a big fan of, you know, World War II especially. So mm-hmm. we wanted to do a series of a series of episodes, you know, probably two or three long where we've found stories of people encountering weird things among the battlefield. And so we're no stranger to war. Uh, Steve, you and I especially, we had history teachers like Mr. Nellis in high school. Mm-hmm. We learned a great deal about, you know, the Revolutionary War, World War One, World War II, um, Vietnam, and so on and so forth. Um, tons and tons of information throughout the years. You know, war is what pretty much paints the annals of human history. Mm-hmm. But sometimes among these stories, there's tales that get dropped between the cracks. Maybe it's a, you know, tunnel digger who blew up Bigfoot in Vietnam. Or maybe it's, you know, the Foo Fighters, unexplainable, unidentified flying objects that were seen, you know, among the skies. So what we want to do is jump into a story tonight that Preston, you dug up. From World War II. Yeah, with, uh, you know, Steve's love of World War II, I thought to myself, man, we should do some more Stephen-themed shows. 
And, uh, oh. you know, I, I loved when my dad shared war stories with me. And then um, I stumbled upon this story. And it reminded me kind of all the crazy shit that dad shared with me. And mm-hmm. uh, since uh, tonight's story takes place in World War II, well, Steve, old buddy, this one's for you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so when doing research on the topic of paranormal encounters on the battlefield and during wartime, one specific and famous tale continued to pop up repeatedly on countless websites spanning across the endless depth of the internet. But even though tonight's tale can be found retold on various paranormal sites, its origins actually begin on Reddit, under the No Sleep subreddit by a user named Igloo444. And it's from the second-hand recounting from Igloo444 where we find the facts and the story that is about to unfold. Tonight's tale takes place on the battlefields of Europe during World War II, where a very sinister and bizarre series of events would play out in the backdrop of the isolated mountain Hamlet. As the Second Great War raged across Europe, the nation of Switzerland found itself in a rather unique position. Their loyalty to the neutrality made them a completely separate entity from both the Axis and the Allied forces and thus caused them to remain mostly untouched. Mostly. Though not completely. Although they kept up the strong defenses along their borders and a deterrent to invading forces and made concessions to Germany to hold them back, trade was blockaded by both allies and the Axis, and their country was eventually bombed by both sides of the war at several points even as it remained independent and mediated between two powerful adversaries. Now, while Switzerland was never actually invaded by Germany, there were definitely plans in place to do so, and as the aggression from the malevolent axis of power steadily increased, the Swiss military resorted to retreating into the remote Alps to a more fortified and better stocked position known as the Reduits where they planned to launch a campaign of attrition and withdrawal should the Germans actually decide to invade. All the while, death himself unknowingly loomed in the air. So, dear listeners, it is against the backdrop of carnage and uncertainty in the land of pristine mountain peaks and breathtaking vistas that our story here allegedly takes place. In a remote mountain village of only 500 people, during the winter of 1943. The following is a a story my grandfather used to tell me before he passed away. I thought the uh, Reddit No Sleep might be able to appreciate it. This story is really long, so I'm sorry. Anyways, guys, I'm not a World War II buff, and uh, I'm just telling the story the way that I remembered hearing it. So dates, locations might be slightly off. All right, don't shoot the messenger. My grandfather was a British infantryman in the Second World War. He was only about 19 years old when he enlisted to serve his country, and while he thought that joining the military would give him opportunities to seek exotic locations around the world, he was never uh, deployed to Tunisia or Italy or the Pacific. 
Instead, he ended up practically in his own backyard, Switzerland, drinking hot coffee or cocoa and chocolate. <laughs> this is just some <laughs> historical information, but it's important to understand before I tell the rest of the story. Switzerland did, did its best to maintain a neutral status throughout the war, but regardless of its attempts to maintain neutrality, Switzerland was still highly sought after by both Allied and the Axis powers. Once the Nazis began committing acts of aggression against Switzerland, England provided reinforcements to the Swiss military. Yet, in an effort to prevent open war within its borders, the Swiss government instructed its military and subsequently the British reinforcements to perform a series of tactical retreats into the Alps. That's how my grandfather found himself stationed in the remote village in the Swiss Alps. At this time, it was early in the winter of 1943, and my grandfather's company was stationed in a secluded village of about 500 people. Now, part of the advantage that they had with this location was that it was really hard to get to, and therefore had little chance of being spontaneously invaded by the Nazis. But, this was also a disadvantage because it made communication with the rest of the Swiss military very difficult. The issue with communication was further compounded when sometime in early December, a series of blizzards swept through the region and completely destroyed the few lines of communication that they had in the first place. So essentially trapped in isolated Swiss village without being able to make contact with the rest of the army, my grandfather's captain decided it would be best to uphold the standing orders and continue defending the village. Weeks had passed. Months had passed. Who fucking knows? Anyways, the road to the outside world was buried in nine feet of dense snowfall. And any telegraph or phone lines that they had were equally useless. It grew deeper into winter and the leaves were stripped from the trees and the bare trunks protruded from the mountainside like broken ribs. And as the days continued on, the winter storm became even more violent. And due to the fact that the village was located between two steep walls of neighboring mountains, it meant that sunlight only shined down on the village for a few short hours per day. This made the soldiers feel as though they were living in a state of perpetual dusk. Yikes. One night my grandfather was at the town bar with a few of his friends from the company and a group of locals approached them. One of them in particular was visibly upset. All of the Swiss people in town grew up speaking German, and none of them were used to having Brits around. So one of them began shouting in broken English, Where take you the children? Luckily, one of the guys my grandpa was drinking with spoke fluent German and was able to act as an impromptu translator. After several minutes of confusion and yelling, the translator turned to my grandfather and the rest of the soldiers and said, they say some of the village children have gone missing, and uh, they want us to do something about it. Now, obviously, the British military doesn't exactly act as a bunch of mercenaries for hire. So, my grandfather's like, not my fucking problem. Right, not my fucking problem. <laughs> That's exactly what my grandfather said, and his friends told the villagers to come back to the headquarters. Really, it was just a makeshift barracks that they had thrown together in the town's church. To talk to the captain, who also told him to go get fucking lost. 
Due to the language barrier, the villagers' discussion with the captain took about two hours, and basically what the captain and his self-designated translator were able to piece together was this. A few weeks after the company entered the village, the locals had noticed a variety of bizarre incidents. At first, it was just the benign stuff like vanishing pieces of wood and tarps from people's sheds, but over the following two months, people realized that valuable items were being stolen from their homes. One man claimed that his family heirloom, a handmade ceremonial halberd, sort of like a traditional Swiss war axe, dope, had disappeared from above his fireplace mantle. The culmination of all these incidents was when a village child went missing. Amber alert. Of course, many assumed that the child's disappearance, although tragic and disconcerting, could be attributed to something as simple as the boy falling into a snowdrift while playing outside or possibly being attacked and killed by a werewolf or a wolf or other predatory animal. But that wasn't the only child that disappeared. There were several. The villager who entered the bar who looked especially upset that was the father of two young boys who had gone missing two days before. He had searched everywhere, high and low. He even rounded up a posse of his fellow townspeople to join the effort. But they couldn't find shit. They, you know, didn't have blues clues. The captain told the villagers <laughs> that he would continue to look into the matter and that he would begin sending some of his men to patrol the streets each night looking for whoever or whatever was the culprit behind the strange thefts and abductions. At first, it was thought that the children may have just simply met their deaths due to some sort of similar accidents while out exploring because the difficult train they lived on was rather treacherous, and the winter that year was incredibly violent. But then another child went missing, and then another. The terrified locals began to think there was perhaps a wild beast of some sort prowling the children or a pack of wolves snatching up their children. <laughs> so to help relieve their fears of the villagers, the captain arranged regular armed night patrols throughout the town. But oddly enough, a few nights later, Private Reginald disappeared from the barracks. At this point, my grandfather told me, Disappearing children was one thing, but a goddamn grown man? That doesn't happen. It seemed unlikely that an animal, even a wolf, or a werewolf, could have taken down a healthy, <laughs> full-grown man on his own, especially a handsome soldier. Naturally, What about a teen wolf? Yeah. Naturally, rumors <laughs> began to surface that this was some sort of monster living in the mountains that came down at night to feast on the occupants of the village. Fuck yes. Despite the nightly patrols ordered by the captain, the disappearances kept occurring Reginald was the only adult victim of whatever was preying on the village. The rest of the victims were all young kids between the ages of 5 and 10. All in all, including the original three kids who had gone missing, seven children had vanished from the town. Damn. Many people in my grandfather's company were growing suspicious. One explanation that got passed around was the that impoverished villagers were actually selling their own children to human traffickers for extra cash. But even that didn't make sense because the roads in, in and out of town were blocked by snow. Three more weeks passed without incident. And at this point it was early spring and the snow was just starting to thaw. That night, coincidentally, when my grandfather was on patrol with several other soldiers, they discovered what was behind the children and Reginald's disappearance. 
You see, it was sometime past midnight when my grandfather and his comrades noticed a figure peering through the bedroom window of one of the villagers' house. My grandfather was at the opposite end of the street, and so at first the figure looking through the window didn't see the patrol. Grandpa and the other soldiers yelled at the prowler, and immediately it tore itself away from the window and began running away. Everyone on the patrol was certain that this was what was behind the disappearances and the break-ins. They ran as fast as they could, faster than Forrest Gump, so they could catch up to him. Though the melting snow and ice in the dead of night and screaming of whatever it was to stop, they kept running and running. And as soon as they found themselves on the outskirts of the village, where the snow was fairly deep, the figure jumped into the ground. And it looked like it had vanished into thin air at first. But as the patrol grew closer, they realized that the prowler had actually just jumped into a cave that had been hollowed out in the side of a snowdrift. Just as the soldiers began yelling into the cave for the figure to come out and show itself, several gunshots exploded into the entrance of the snow cave. Without thinking, my grandfather and the rest of the patrol shouldered their weapons and began firing into all holes. Silence. They waited for what seemed like hours, but really it was just a couple of minutes. One incredibly brave member of the patrol volunteered to climb into the cave and investigate. He drew his pistol, kneeled down, and crawled into the cave. Several seconds later, he emerged completely horrified with a terrible expression on his face. My grandfather took out his flashlight and shined it into the cave, and what he saw was the, the gruesome explanation behind the strange occurrences in the town. The figure that they had been chasing was Reginald, the private who had gone missing weeks before. They had shot Reginald right through the heart. The cave was not only occupied by Reginald, but also the bodies of seven partially eaten children. Either due to stress of being snowed in all winter or living near uh, constant darkness or some sort of terrible mental issue, Reginald had gone completely mad and begun breaking into the villagers' houses and snatching their children from their homes in the middle of the night. He had used that halberd that had been reported missing to dismember the bodies after he slit the children's throat and hid them in the cave that he carved into the snowdrift. Damn. So what exactly was it that stole away the seven children that had been discovered in the cave? Being that the location of the incident was so remote and so dangerous, it's hard to know exactly what the truth was. Was it a cannibal prowling under the cover of violent snowstorms? Was it the dreaded Wendigo inhabiting the body of an otherwise innocent man? Or perhaps Private Reginald was simply lost in the storm himself and was found at the wrong place at the wrong time, and succumbed to a death by assumption. And the true culprit could still be a large, still out there stalking its prey, out there in the snowy blanket of the European mountains. Naked. It sounds a lot like, um, gosh, that movie, Preston. What's that movie you like so much? The really good one about cannibalism. Oh, shit. Uh, Ravenous is Ravenous. the movie that you're talking about. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Solid movie, man. Steven, did you watch that yet? I don't think so. Oof, golly, man. <laughs> it's a solid one. 
Well, as kind of an epilogue to that story, which, I mean, geez Louise, that's fucking sad and super crazy, man. Um, I wanted to talk about an actual true case of cannibalism that took place in World War II. So after the war, a lot of Japanese soldiers claimed that they only ate human flesh because they were so hungry it was the only thing available. And in a lot of cases, the evidence says it might be true. Back in 1945, a first-year medical student named Toshio Tono stands in the halls of the Kyushu Imperial University with two blindfolded American prisoners led down to a pathology lab by Japanese soldiers. He says, I do wonder if something unpleasant was about to happen to them, but I had no idea it was going to be so awful. The two blindfolded men were members of the B-29 bomber team, and they were already wounded after being captured. They were apparently led to believe they were going to be receiving treatment for their injuries. Instead, though, the doctors began a series of human experiments, as Tono himself says he looked on in horror. According to his testimony, later used against the doctors at the Allied War Crime Tribunal, they were said to inject one prisoner with seawater to see if it would be a substitution for sterile saline. Other prisoners had body parts and parts of their organs removed, with one deprived of a whole lung, just so doctors could see how the rest of the respiratory system might respond. Now, as a young medical student, Tono's task usually involved washing blood off the floor and preparing seawater drips for the superiors, but he said the experiments had absolutely no medical merit. They were just being used to inflict cruel punishment, torture, and even death on the prisoners. But as horrifying as it would be to be injected with seawater or have random organs removed, one allegation was perhaps the absolute worst. Cannibalism. According to American lawyers, at least one prisoner's liver had been removed, cooked, and served to Japanese officers. Though charges of cannibalism were later dropped in the specific case mentioned, there's no question that some Japanese soldiers did indeed eat human flesh during World War II, and sometimes they weren't even hungry when they did it. For some World War II survivors, exposing the truth about Japanese war crimes such as cannibalism had become an obsession. One survivor was Kenzo Okuzaki, Akuzaki, an Imperial Japanese Army veteran and the subject of the 1988 documentary The Emperor's Naked Army Marches On. By the time Akuzaki shot the film, he had an intensive criminal record. He'd already spent 10 years in solitary confinement for manslaughter back in the 1950s, and shortly after getting out of prison, he had staged a bizarre demonstration at the Imperial Palace in 1969. He was firing pachinko pinballs from slingshots aimed at Emperor Hirohoto, the same emperor who had reigned during World War II. As it turned out, Akazaki took this strange action in order to pursue the emperor's war responsibility in the Japanese court system. During his trial, he challenged the constitutionality of the emperor's system and argued that the emperor was responsible for Japan's war crimes during World War II. Although Akuzaki's argument was ultimately ignored, this may have been the sole instance in modern Japanese history when these questions were seriously discussed in legal settings. 
Well, they're very ritualistic, especially back then. Oh, yeah, for sure. They looked at their leader as a god. That's why they would kamikaze or lay on the sword, you know, because, I mean, they looked at their leader as that, the ultimate being. Right, right, exactly. Die for your leader and die for your country. Mm -hmm. Well, during the court cases, some of the former officers and enlisted men began to open up. Some suggested that Akuzaki's comrades were condemned for desertion or for participating in cannibalism. Another grizzly theory is that they were put to death so that cannibalistic soldiers could then eat them. At one point, a former soldier claims that multiple isolated soldiers were reduced to cannibalism. He says they tried at first to eat local natives, but they were too difficult to catch. So they then attempted to go after Australian soldiers on the island. Finally, they apparently turned on each other, sometimes even picking their prey based on personality due to the supposed shortage of actual food. Jesus. Savages. I don't know. There are other cases of this kind of thing happening out on the, on the battlefield, so to speak. It's hard to say whether or not it's true, but, I mean, in this one instance here, this documentary, that was one of the subjects in the documentary. So the way, I, I, the way I look at it is that war is so damn crazy anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyone can snap. Uh, groups of people can snap. And yeah, for sure. When you're in the middle of nowhere and you don't have food, I could easily see that becoming an option in, in the war-torn areas like that, especially back then with the way things were. It's yeah. gross, but, yeah, man, for sure. I could definitely see it. Everybody was doing fucked up shit back then. Don't matter what country you were from. And you know we're we're taught that the Nazis did all sorts of really nasty experiments, which they did. But there's a lot of documentation um, I was looking at, going down little rabbit holes for these upcoming episodes, where a lot of Japanese soldiers and scientists did a lot of the similar kind mm-hmm. of stuff the Nazis had gotten away with as well. So I mean, just goes to say that anybody's capable of anything, you know. Very true. Well, to bring things kind of back to an upswing to finish out the episode, staying in World War II, I wanted to touch a little bit on the flying humanoid sightings from World War II. Captain America flying through the sky with a shield? (laughs) Right. Right. In the Pacific Theater of World War II, troops had reported witnessing peculiar flying humanoids in the skies over battlefields. Described as possessing a large pair of leathery, bat-like wings, these creatures were said to have had been spotted close to military installations on numerous occasions. They were said to be silent and very shy, as they reported, but military eyewitnesses couldn't escape the unraveling feeling that they were fighting more than just a human enemy. Many of the alleged sightings date back around the time of the Battle of Okinawa in 1945. Years afterwards, reports of flying humanoids in the Pacific were still being made by soldiers. One such report came from Sinclair Taylor, a U.S. Air Force private who was on guard duty at Camp Okubo near Kyoto, Japan back in 1952. The sounds of the creature's wings is what first drew the private's attention. To begin with, he thought he was looking at a giant bird. However, as the creature flew closer, it became clear that it wasn't simply a bird. According to Taylor's testimony, the enigmatic being had a body of a man about seven feet tall, but also had a seven-foot wingspan. After having flown closer to the private, the creature stopped and hovered in the air. Now Taylor panicked and began firing his weapon at the flying creature. 
and when he looked back after running away, he said the creature had vanished. No blood or cadaver or any physical evidence remained behind. He said when I looked to see if my bullets had found a home, there was just nothing there. Even more bizarre is the fact that Taylor was not the only witness to the creature. It has been reported that when they declared the incident to a sergeant, it was revealed another guard had witnessed the exact same creature one year before. Although Private Sinclair Taylor had no knowledge of the previous sighting and had no contact with any other eyewitnesses, the two descriptions of the same winged creature were astonishingly similar. Theories as to what Taylor and others saw included secret military projects and the misidentification of simply local wildlife. Misidentification, though, suggests crows, which may have been reported to be much larger in Japan than other parts of the world. Certainly in other countryside areas, crows with wingspans twice the normal size have been sighted by rural farmers. These supersized birds are also reported to be more reserved and less vocal than other common crows. But this being said, misidentification of crows or other large birds does not account for the alleged human-like characteristics of these creatures, nor will it explain their seemingly unnatural ability to survive rapid gunfire, as reported by Sinclair Taylor. As such, the true nature of flying humanoid creatures being sighted over Japan remains a mystery. But if you guys remember back when we talked about Mothman, there's been countless reports of flying humanoids in Japan, especially when Fukushima had exploded. A lot of people reported seeing a large flying humanoid creature before the actual um, explosion of that plant. Does Mothra man? <laughs> right. But there we go. Just a little dive into uh, Japan to follow up Preston with your story. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a... Uh, you know, that's probably about the the highlights, unless Sean's got, uh, you know, the ace in the hole. Um, because as I was doing the research for this topic, and, you know, I'd, I'd come across, like, websites, and it's like, the top ten most terrifying horror stories from World War II. <laughs> well, the Arizona sank off the coast of uh, Hawaii, and uh, there was a soldier on there, a sailor named Jerry. Well, Jerry likes to touch people um, on the land, and, uh, you know, it's about uh, five miles from where the ship sank. But uh, people think uh, every time they get touched while they're on the dock, it's Jerry. Jerry's a little rascally fucker. And it's like, dude, this is not, this is not Paranormal World War II. This is like some bullshit top ten website clickbait. God damn it, I <laughs> fell for it. So we'll see what Sean pulls out. Yeah, I um I've got a couple books that feature stories, you know, over in you know Soviet Union and stuff like that. So at least they're published. So we <laughs> hope that there's more yeah. uh, truth based in those, you know, versus creepy pasta that gets sewn into all these websites so often. Yeah. And even your story about the, uh, you know, the cannibal, it's been featured for, as, I mean, as I'm looking across websites for over 10 years, so I don't remember when Reddit came about and when No Sleep became a thing, but I mean, it seems to have a little bit more lore behind it and a little more potential truth as opposed to the episode on the rake that we covered right. a while back, which people then ridiculed us for saying, it's just a creepy pasta. Yeah. It's fake. It's not real. It's folklore. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. Bet. Well, does anybody have anything else to add on this episode? I do not. Cool. 
Well, I've got some good stuff saved up for next episode, so don't you worry. But in the meantime, if you're on the social medias, please check us out on Instagram at PXLParanormal. And then check us out on Facebook, The Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. After you get done going to Facebook and Twitter and the Instagram, do yourself a favor and go over to YouTube and check out the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast official YouTube page. Holy shit, we're at 179, so we've gained two since last episode. That's like one away from 80, Ooh, uh, which we're is... Uh, 200. Yeah, which is 20 away from 200. So, you know, tell your kids, tell your wives, tell your friends, your family, your neighbors. Uh, you know, spread the spread the word. Let's grow this shit, baby. <laughs> Hell yeah. And as always, if you need a beer... If you want a beard, if you don't want to have to look like a hairy hobo out in the Switch Alps wilderness, then do yourself a favor and go over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. And to pick up some Bay Rum Dundee Cedar. Uh, that will actually kind of remind yourself of being out in the Alps with all the, the pine trees and everything. And you'll, you mean, you'll smell amazing. You'll look amazing. you got fresh citrus, sweet tobacco. Get it all. Get it at Dobbs. Use the promo code and uh, thank your boys. Your boys. And if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang at CD Trade Post, Pawnee, and I was Snicka. just in there today. Hell yeah. And got a Glee Complete Series on DVD for me and Katie <laughs> nice. to watch. Um, and she introduced me to Calvin's, which is on South Seneca. It's in the old New Way building. Oh my God. Oh, yeah? That burger, fucking phenomenal. We'll definitely be back to that. So good. Huh. Cool. So thanks, Leslie. Well, yeah, hell yeah. Well, unless you guys have anything else to add, I'm going to jump off here and watch The Brave Little Toaster for the first time Oh, ever. nice. It's a great movie. Until next time, cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And be as brave as that little toaster. And stay spooky. And stay on the Paranormal Highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the Paranormal Highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.